0: Thank you, guys. Normally, at this time, I'm telling you to open your Bibles, but I want you to wait just for a second. I want to say something first. Um, over the next two months, uh, we will be in this country going through a roller coaster political cycle. And the reason for that is the probability is high that in November, either Hillary Clinton. Or Donald Trump will be our next president. I don't know how you feel about your candidate. You you may have a candidate that you're really pulling for, somebody you really believe in. But I think we can all, deep down, if we're really honest with ourselves, acknowledge that there are some deep flaws with both of these candidates. Maybe in a way unique than we've ever seen before. My concern as your pastor is not primarily with the election. I'm concerned about it, but it's not primarily with the election. My concern as your pastor is how we as a church respond, think of, and engage in this world. Our mission, our focus at Riverview is to guide people to Christ-centered identity and Christ-centered influence. So here's what we're going to do over the next 10 weeks. I have selected a book in the Bible that will help in a unique and maybe more special way than some of the other books that we've looked at in the past. It will help ground our identity in Jesus Christ. Because what we need is to engage, we need to pray, but we need to remember, for those of us that know Christ, we need to remember who we are and whose we are. With that said, turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter We will spend the next 10 weeks in the book of 1 Peter. Now, if you're looking at the screen behind me and you're remembering the summer, you'll notice that our graphic and kind of what we're doing with a look for this message series of messages is similar to what we looked at with Daniel. The book of Daniel and the book of 1 Peter have the same theme. You are, if you know Jesus... An alien and a pilgrim. I want to start this morning by talking about our alien identity, who we are in Christ, and help that ground us as we walk through the next ten roller coaster weeks here in this country. Would you please stand to your feet as we honor the reading of God's word in First Peter chapter one, starting in verse one. First Peter 1.1 1, one says these words: Peter. An apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles or aliens or pilgrims, depending upon your translation, of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Would you please pray with me? God, we want to stop before we jump into your word and seek to understand this passage and declare together our need for you. God, we're asking for you to take your word and that by your spirit, you would open our eyes melt our hearts so that we can see the truth that you have for us this morning. God, would you remove distractions? Help us not think about what we've got next. Help us to be fully present in this moment. And Father, as we work through this text, would you help us not just be hearers of your word? Would you help us to be doers as well? In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You can be seated. An alien identity... The letter, 1 Peter, starts with Peter introducing himself. This is indeed the same Peter who was one of the 12 disciples. In fact, one of the three that Jesus spent significantly more time with. This is the same Peter who at one point Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. This is also the same Peter who denied Jesus how many times? Three times. But this is the same Peter by God's grace, who in the book of Acts, God uses to preach powerfully and to see thousands of people come to faith in Christ. So this is kind of a message within a message. But if you're wondering, can God use someone who's made some mistakes, who's had some bumps along the way, Peter and this book serve as an example to say, yes, God can still use broken, messed up people. But he identifies specifically the people he's writing to. So he introduces himself, common formula in a letter. This is who's writing it. And then he identifies the recipients in the latter part of verse 1. Look at your Bibles. To those who are elect or chosen aliens of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now all these geographical designations, if you were to look in the back of your Bible at your map section, you'll learn that they're primarily modern-day Turkey also known as Asia Minor in this day and age. But one of the things that's interesting about the book of First Peter, different than, say, Colossians or Philippians, is that Peter wasn't writing to a specific church. He was writing to a network of churches. This letter was meant to be passed from all the churches in this region of the world. One of the reasons that's significant for us is it's more of a general communication of gospel truth than it is some specific nuanced things that were problems in specific churches. That's really helpful for you and for me, because maybe it's a little easier in 1 Peter to see how some of these principles directly apply in our lives. He's writing a general letter to all Christians. Now, what's significant about Peter's introduction is not his identifying of himself. It's not necessarily the geographical designations. What's significant about this passage of Scripture is what he calls believers, there were three really significant words your eyes should just kind of zero in on when you read this passage. Look back at verse one. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Three words, elect exiles of the dispersion. Let's start with the word exile. Some of your translations might say alien, might say pilgrim. Some of you might even have a translation that says sojourner, okay? Here's the basic idea Peter is reminding the church as they're dispersed over the Roman Empire at the time that ultimately where they find themselves geographically is not their home. He's reminding them that they actually don't fit into the world system of values and priorities that are around them. They are a unique and a special group of people. So if you remember the book of Daniel, this is the same thing we talked about in the book of Daniel. Daniel and his friends were taken from the nation of Judah off to Babylon in a foreign hostile, different kind of world. So the picture that you should have in your mind when you think about the word alien or exile or pilgrim is a spiritual embassy, right? So if you recognize that the American consulate has embassies all over the world, right? And it's where there's a piece of dirt, say in Brazil or in Russia, where there is dirt given to the United States of America and that is technically our land, but we're surrounded by a foreign nation. Here's what Peter is saying. When you and I come to Christ, it's as if Christ establishes a spiritual embassy with every single follower of Jesus. We change our identity. We're no longer citizens of the world around us. We have a heavenly citizenship. Now, Peter, in explaining this kind of position and this identity, gives some teeth He gives some clarification to how this happened. And he uses the word elect. This is the second word, elect or chosen. This is a word that has given the church some consternation over the last really four or 500 years because what it's saying is that God is selecting people to be his church. It's saying that God chooses people in such a way that before time began, Before God spoke the world into existence, God was here setting aside a people for his own possession. Now, there are two historic ways people have understood how this works. Okay, On the one hand, people say, well, before time was created, God was looking ahead, and he was seeing the decision you were going to make for Christ, and he chose you based on this kind of foreknowledge of what you were going to do in the future. That's one way people have understood this. A second way people have understood this is that God, in a way that we don't fully understand in a mystery that's kept in the mind and the heart of God, God selected some people for salvation totally based on his will. Now, when you hear this, there's this American visceral reaction, right, that we first have. And the reaction is, well, that doesn't seem very fair. I mean, God chose some people and, left other people to their sin. Remember, sweet people, what's fair is everyone goes to hell. What's fair is that no one receives grace. That's what grace is. It's God's forgiveness and mercy. Whether you understand it as God's foreknowledge or his total mysterious mysterious will, here's the bottom line for the idea of being chosen or elect. The bottom line is this. You and I did not go seek God. God sought us. The bottom line for this idea of being chosen is that you and I weren't sitting around in a room going, Man, I wish I could just get out of my sin. I'm so unhappy in this. I just wish I could break out of it and I could go to God myself. None of us are doing that. In fact, the Bible describes the fact that we're walking and kind of happy in our sin. What has to happen is God pursues us. God seeks us out and draws us to himself. So whether you understand this as God's foreknowledge completely or the mystery, mystery of his will, what we've all got to come together and say is we didn't think up salvation and grace. This is God's idea and his plan of purpose to seek us out. So what this tells us is this idea of being an alien, being a pilgrim, being a spiritual embassy is initiated with God. God seeks us out, sets us apart. We have to respond in repentance and faith to receive his forgiveness. But God's the one who initiates with us. There's one more word here that helps us understand who we are. Not only are we elect, not only are we exiles, the Bible also says we are of the dispersion. Now that word dispersion or diaspora, what it means is that back in the Old Testament, when God's people would disobey, he would bring in cruel oppressors, the Assyrians or the Babylonians, as the case may be, and they would conquer Israel and Judah, and they would take them and disperse them all over the known world. So back to the book of Daniel. You remember Daniel? Daniel is the story of God's people being moved from Judah and Jerusalem to Babylon they're dispersed. What the Bible's saying here is that God setting us apart, God establishing us as a spiritual embassy is intentional and purposeful. Our dispersion throughout the world is part of God's plan to give the gospel to the nations. So watch this distinction, okay? Listen very carefully. While the nation of Israel was dispersed because of disobedience, The church is dispersed by design. The design of God is to take his people and scatter them all over the known world so that people could hear the glorious praises of his grace. So here's what this means. If we are aliens initiated by God, set apart for a purpose, what that means is all of us who are aliens, have a specific role to play in God's plans and purposes. So take a stroll down memory lane with me for a moment. Many of you will remember a day and age in which the U.S. government and the military was having a compulsory draft. How many of you are alive during a compulsory draft? Okay, a good chunk of you, maybe half the room. What that meant is the U.S. government, by some process, would select people to go and fight in armed combat. World War II, Vietnam, were some of the most recent conflicts where we saw this happen. Historically, it's been men who've done that. And what happened, of course, was if a man came to his mailbox and opened the mailbox and pulled a letter and opened it, and if it said, you have been drafted by the United States government for military service, in that moment, that man's life changed completely. Didn't matter what was going on in his family. Doesn't matter what was happening in his financial world. Doesn't matter what commitments that he had. That compulsory draft to set him aside for military service changed his world because it said, at this point in time, in this location, you gotta be there. In the same way, think about this with me, church. Every single follower of Jesus has received a spiritual draft notice. We have all been given a draft letter that says, you've been set apart for a purpose. You've been set apart to make Christ known where you are. And so while this idea of being an alien definitely relates to my relationship with God and the fact that my final home is heaven, this is not my home, one of the significant ways the book of 1 Peter is gonna flesh out the idea of being an alien is by explaining that it shifts our relationship to the world. God's gracious setting apart of his people for a purpose of being aliens and pilgrims changes how we relate and view and engage with the world. Let me give that to you in a statement. Here's the shift that happens for you and for me if we know Christ. Aliens are not here to get from the world. We are here to give to the world. You, if you're a follower of Jesus, are not walking this earth just for your 401k or your retirement or your house or to get goods and services. That's not why you're here. You're here to pour the goodness and the graciousness of our God into the lives of people through deed and through word. It's the difference between being a consumer and being an alien. Now, this is hard for us because as Americans, we're conditioned to be consumers. We think that our purpose is to receive goods and services. We, I think maybe more, give me some rope here, but I think maybe more than ever in our country, we have an entitlement mindset. Anybody agree with me on that? Entitlement, you guys see that? Oh, got some hands there. It's there, right? And the reason it's there is because we've been conditioned to think my purpose is to get. I'm here to receive. If you don't believe me, in about 30 minutes, go to Taco Bell or go to Wendy's and watch what happens if somebody doesn't get their food on time. Watch what happens if somebody's order gets messed up. There's this visceral reaction we have that says, I... Should have gotten it in this amount of time or you should have been competent enough to do this. Give it to me. Now, there's nothing wrong with recognizing that a stable economy is built upon the exchange of goods and services. We acknowledge that. If you work a job, I believe, biblically speaking, you should receive your wages. While that's there, what we just want to come along and say is, while that reality exists in a stable, functioning society, that's not fundamentally who you are. Who you are is an alien, You're a pilgrim. You're not here to get a bunch of stuff. You're here to give away the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Another way we see consumerism impacting this world is even in the church. Um, If you've said this to me, do not be upset because I'm not trying to throw you under the bus. I've used this phrase too. We talk about church shopping. I won't ask you to raise your hands if you've ever used that term. But many of us have. And the idea is I'm going to find a church where I like the music, the preaching semi semi semi-okay, and it's going to meet my needs. And what's happened to many churches is we've begun to think of the church just as this one-hour experience on Sunday morning that's here to entertain you and you're watching and we're participating up here and you're just an observer, rather than the church really being an organism of people that care for one another, minister to one another, and take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. So what are we saying? The work of the triune God in my life shifts the way I relate to the world. So let me ask you a question just as we are getting into this this morning, just as we apply this together and we slow down a little bit. Are you a consumer or are you an alien and pilgrim? Do you see yourself as primarily a consumer of goods and services that's entitled to certain things? Or do I recognize that my purpose is not to get, but by God's grace and for his glory, to pour my life with the gospel of Jesus Christ into other people? So here's the question I want to spend the rest of our time talking about. Some of us, starting with your pastor, struggle at times with forgetting who we are. How do we shift from being a consumer to an alien? How do we shift from thinking that we're entitled to being a spiritual embassy of pilgrims on mission for Jesus Christ? I want to show you three shifts in this passage of Scripture that have to happen in our lives if we're going to move from being consumers to aliens. These three shifts correspond to three activities of the Trinity. I don't know if you noticed when I read this, we had the Father doing things, the Spirit, and the Son. I want to show you these three shifts to help us understand how we live this way. Shift number one. We have to think about our security differently. If we're going to move from being consumers to being aliens, we have to shift how we view our security and safety. Look in your Bibles at verse two. It says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father... Now, what that according is modifying or connecting is the word chosen, elect. I mean, it's explaining how that works, how we got to be people set apart. And what this says is that the foreknowledge of the Father is what drew us to him. And when it talks about foreknowledge, what it means is that God knows everything, past, present, future. He knows everything that's going to happen. But God's knowledge is not merely awareness of things that are going to happen. God's knowledge is also connected to a power that God has to guide the events of history to his desired end. So let me apply that really quick to make sure we're understanding the weight of that. The person who's elected president of the United States, for whatever reason, in a mystery that's to me, will be the person God wants elected. Either for judgment... Or for some other reason to shift things the way he's shifting them, the Bible is clear don't be thrown off by this. The Bible is clear that things will get progressively worse. The Bible describes history like a woman in labor. You guys ever been in the room with a woman with labor and labor? Some of you have. Does it get more intense or less intense before the baby comes? What? More. The, the world that we live in, the Bible describes that as if there's going to be this intensification and then the end will come. What that means is you and I recognize that our security doesn't rest in our bank accounts and our jobs and our resumes, in our house or our cars. The reason I can be secure is because God is sovereign. I can lay my head on my pillow at night and know that not only does God know everything that's going to happen, God is working through his power and might to guide this world towards his plans and purposes. So listen to this statement. God is not just a passive participant watching helplessly what's going on. God is actively guiding the world to his desired end. Now we would be in trouble, church, If this God, who's all-powerful and guiding the world, was maniacal, was a despot. But that's not how the Bible describes him. Notice the word the Bible uses to describe God. According to the foreknowledge of God, the what? Father. You guys out there? Stay with me. I'm going to keep you on your toes today, all right? God the Father. The Bible uses the picture of a father to describe the fact that not only is God all powerful and mighty, but God is loving and kind and gracious. He invites us, He pursues us into His presence as a father would a son or a daughter. Think about one of the most secure places you can be. Think about my little girl when she's crying or when she's upset. One of the most secure places she can be is in my arms. That's a good place for me too, by the way, where I'm holding her, I'm loving her. There's something about that connection, right, between moms and children that's always there. There's this safety and security between moms and dads and that relationship they have. And God, through Peter, is inspiring us to recognize that his relationship to us is like a father. I'm secure in the surety and goodness of God's plans and purposes. Let me try to develop that just a little bit more. Why am I secure in God's plans and purposes? Because the greatest problem I have has already been solved. The people that do not know Christ in this world think their greatest problem is a lack. A lack of finances, a lack of significance, a lack of uh, the size of a house, or lack of the nicety of a car, we, we think that our problem is lack. But a pilgrim, an alien, doesn't think that our greatest problem is lack. The pilgrim, an alien, recognizes that my greatest problem is my rebellion before God. My greatest problem is not my finances, it's not my health, it's not my kids. It's not some person I've got a problem with at work. My greatest problem is my rebellion before God that every one of us have embraced. How have we embraced that rebellion? Because our hearts, rather than wanting to worship God, worship ourselves. And so we express this in all manner of ways. We lie. We have hatred. We have lust in our hearts. We've stolen. We've we've been angry and prideful towards people. All of those things are expressions of our hearts and the sickness that's there. The Bible is clear that because of those things, we deserve the wrath of a holy and righteous God. And though God is totally justified in giving you and I punishment, the God that we worship says, I'm going to save you. I'm going to send my son to take the penalty that you should have gotten on himself. He's going to die. He's going to rise again. He's going to ascend, and he's going to intercede for you. My greatest problem is not my finances. It's not the size of my house. It's not my kids' grades. My greatest problem is my sin, and the reason I can be secure is that problem has already been dealt with. So let me ask you a question this morning. What do you think your greatest problem is? What do you think, right now, if you were just to just theoretically get out a piece of paper and write it down, what is my greatest problem? I know I told you what the reality is, but if you're honest with yourself, it's how you feel, where you sit here right now. What's your greatest problem? Here's the reality. Show me what your greatest problem is, and I'll show you the solution you're hoping in. Whatever you think your greatest problem is, the solution is where you're going to find your identity. So if you're consumed with your finances, and you think my problem is if if we just had $500 more a month, everything would be great, our lives would be fixed. If you think that's your problem, your identity and your hope is going to rest in the solution that you think will solve it. Some of you may think that your problem is significance. I've got to make a mark on this world. I've got to make a difference. And if I don't do that, I don't matter. If you think that's your greatest problem, your solution and where you're going to find your hope and your identity is going to rest in solving that issue of significance. Maybe some of you that are single, it's, it's finding a mate. If I could just find the right guy... If I could just find the right girl then then everything in my life would be complete would be fulfilled I'd be happy if you think that's your greatest problem your solution and the hope that you have will rest in that person number one what's got to happen if we're going to quit being consumers and start being aliens is we've had a shift in how we view our security number two We've got a shift in how we understand the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. The empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Look back at your Bibles in verse 2. It says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit, the third person in the Trinity. He's fully God. But there are some different things that the Holy Spirit does that distinguish Him from the Father and the Son. What the Holy Spirit does is He takes the plans and the purposes of the Father and He applies them to our lives. The Holy Spirit is the one who pursues us. You remember a few minutes ago I said that God pursues us, God seeks us out. The Holy Spirit's the one who does that. This consecration that He's talking about or sanctification means that the Holy Spirit is the one who makes us holy. He cleanses us from head to toe from our sins. But this is what's really important. Not only does he cleanse us at the moment of conversion when we repent and trust Christ, the Holy Spirit continues to work in our lives every single day. It's the picture of a marriage, right? The way marriage by design is supposed to work. A lot of marriages work this way. You know, you you, uh, come into a relationship with somebody, you start dating them, you You're almost infatuated with them, right? There's this just fun phase where every single moment of every single day is exciting as you learn more things about this person and nothing can go wrong and you're dancing through the the flowers and there's rainbows and butterflies and music. And then you get married and you have a job and you have bills and you have kids. That's a real game changer, right, mom and dad? And what tends to happen a lot of times in a lot of marriages is a lot of people end up being just roommates. We're just, we're just here, man. We're trying to get the kids to the next thing, and we're trying to survive. We've got this mortgage. We've got these cars. This is it. By design, though, the way marriage is supposed to work is you are to continue to date and pursue one another within marriage. Right? Ideally, you don't just clobber, hit her over the head, guys, and drag her by by the hair into the cave, right? It's not over once you've married her. You're to continue to pursue and date her. I'm not talking about necessarily just a formal time every week, but there's a, a pursuance of your spouse. What the Holy Spirit's describing here through Peter and his work is that he doesn't just pursue us and then leave us and drop us the Holy Spirit continues to pursue us within our relationship with Christ. So here's what this means. One of the ways we've got to understand our shift from being consumers to being aliens and pilgrims is understanding that we're to work and cooperate with the work of the Spirit in our lives. One of the ways we shift from getting to giving is by cooperating with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You have a role and responsibility as a follower of Jesus in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. My parents are sitting right here. They drove up from Memphis, as you guys heard, for uh, Noah's, who you can get confused with Seth. Noah's four downstairs. Seth is six. He was up here with us. But one of the ways my parents... um, decided to introduce me into manhood and adulthood is through yard work. Can I get an amen, parents? (laughs) Uh, Yard work was one of the ways they did that. And so, you know, typical, I started with the weed eater, right? And working that and making the the side of our yard look like this when I was 10, 11, 12. But as I got older, I got to cut the grass with the push mower, right? It's exciting at first, but it gets kind of old once you start doing it. Thankfully, the push mower that my parents entrusted to me when I first started cutting the grass was self-propelled. How many of you know what a self-propelled mower is? Okay. Now, our self-propelled mower was great because it was heavy, it was kind of bulky, and it, the wheels would turn and move themselves, right? But the problem was, it didn't have like a kill switch if you let go of it. So you see what happened, right? I'd be cutting the grass, get distracted, my brother would say something, and off went the lawnmower, Right? It, because it was propelled. It was moving. In the same way, the Holy Spirit's moving in our lives. There's a self-propulsion to it. It's always moving. It's always, he's always working in our hearts. And so what you and I have to do, similar to that lawnmower image, is we have to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit to transform us. Now, how do you do that? How do you cooperate with the Holy Spirit? Let me give you two quick ways to do that. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. Two quick ways we cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit. Number one is we do that through the Word of God. The Word of God is the vocabulary the Holy Spirit uses to speak to us. So when I read the Word, when I memorize the Word, when I hide it in my head and in my heart, what I'm doing is I'm giving the Holy Spirit a word bank a data bank from which he can speak and encourage me. The second way that I can cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit is quieting and humbling my heart before God in prayer. When we pray the way God designs us to pray, it's a humbling experience. Because prayer is not just an entitled banging of our fists on the table, asking for things for God. Biblically speaking, prayer is when I humble myself and say, God, I need you. So here's what happens. When I pray and when I spend time with the Word, I begin to sensitize my heart and my powers of discernment to know when the Holy Spirit's working in my life, how He's wanting me to move. Uh, Last Sunday night, we do our Entrust Leadership Development. We've got 25 folks going through that this year. There was a question that was asked, how do I know what God's will is for my life? How do I determine that this is the Holy Spirit working in me? And I added, so you mean you want to know how you can discern the Holy Spirit working from indigestion from the burrito that you ate, right? How do you tell the difference? Because if it's a feeling, is it just this feeling that I had because I'm anxious about it or concerned? How can I tell if the Holy Spirit's working in my heart? And the answer to that is that we've always, always, always got to start with the Bible. Not because you're always going to get chapter and verse on which job you should take or which major you should have in university life but because the Bible what tunes your heart to pick up the frequency that God is giving to you through his word. So how many of you remember a day when we had radios and we had to use the dial to get the right frequency to hear the song that was played? How many of you guys remember that? Man, a lot of us do. Kids today, right, they don't know anything about that, but, but there's this, there was this art, if you will, to being in a certain spot in your car or being in a certain place at home, and you had to learn how to turn the dial just right to get the music to play to pick up the frequency from that radio station, okay that 's the picture of how the word and the prayer work word and the pra- word and prayer work in our lives. The, the Word of God and prayer are like you and I cooperating with the spirit to turn the dial of our hearts to pick up what God is saying to us. so number one, how do we shift from being aliens? Uh, how do we shift from being consumers to being aliens it's number one through uh, the security that we have in Christ number two. It's through the empowerment we have through the Spirit. And thirdly and finally, it's through valuing Jesus Christ above all else. The third word is value in Jesus Christ above all else. Can you guys advance the slide? My technology is not working up here. Value that we have in Christ. Look at the rest of verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Now, one of the unique parts about the book of 1 Peter, if you hang with us this year, this fall, is you'll see reference after reference to the Old Testament. Peter alludes to, connects a lot of things happening in the Old Testament to the New Testament, to the church. What you're seeing here, this reference, obedience and sprinkling with the blood of Jesus, is a reference to Exodus 24. If you're taking notes, you can write down Exodus 24. And here's what Exodus 24 tells us. The Israelites, the people of God, as they were coming out of slavery and into the promised land, God asked them to commit themselves to him. And so there was a pivotal moment when they bowed their knees and said, we are surrendering to follow and to love and to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what's wrapped up in that word obedience. It's It's a loose term Peter's using to describe the fact that we have to respond to the gospel. We have to surrender our lives to Christ. The way, if you're not a Christian this morning, the way you become a Christian is not by attending church. It's not by going through some religious steps. It's by repenting, turning from your sin, and trusting Christ. That's what's wrapped up in the word obedience. And when that happened, both in the Old Testament and the New, there was a sprinkling of blood. Now, in the Old Testament, it was a sprinkling of the blood of bulls and goats. It was animals. That blood in the Old Testament didn't save those people. It merely pointed them to the seriousness of their sin and the coming promise of a Savior. In the New Testament, though, when you and I surrender our lives to Christ, there is in the same way a sprinkling, a covering of our lives with the blood of Christ so that when God looks at you and me, if we know him, God doesn't see our sin anymore. He doesn't see our disobedience he sees the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, why is the blood of Jesus Christ so important? It's because that blood was shed for you in your place. The reason the blood of Jesus is so precious and valuable is because you and I should have had our blood shed for our sin. But instead of God punishing us, God pours all that we should have gotten on Jesus. So here's the point. One of the ways that we will move from being consumers to being aliens is valuing the blood of Christ above everything else in our lives. The reason we think we're here to get, if we're honest with ourselves, is because we think there are things the world has to offer us that are better than Jesus. The way that we've got to shift in our thinking, this shift is recognizing actually there's not any value here. Are there some good things or some things I should work hard for that God calls me to do with the gifts and abilities he's given me? Yes. But none of these things that the world has to offer me even come close to comparing with the blood of Christ. It's because we believe we have an internal problem that requires an external solution. The reason the blood of Jesus is so valuable is we have an internal problem, our sin, that requires the blood of Christ externally coming to us, imputed to us. This past week, um, the vice president for the Democratic Party, Tim Kaine, was at some human rights organization, and he was defending his commitment to same-sex marriage, transgender rights, and, and a host of other things. And it wasn't surprising to me that he was uh, communicating his affirmation of those things. That's a part of that party's platform. What was interesting to me was how he argued for this. Because the way that Tim Kaine argued for the affirmation of these things was from Genesis chapter 1. And here's what he said. He said, well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything that God made is good. And so if you're living your life and you're functioning in society, God made you and he made you very good. So everything we have in society, everything that's going on is good because God made it that way. And what's interesting to me is Tim Cain in his Bible must stop with Genesis 1. There's like a chapter 3, right? What does chapter 3 tell us? Chapter 3 tells us that sin enters the world. There's brokenness. And so what we're hearing from both the left and some even from the right is, if you feel a certain way, do that. If it feels good to you, be true to yourself. Live that truth out in your life. And what we want to come back and say as Christians is, yes, you probably do feel that way. But your feelings make a lousy compass. Your feelings make a horrible GPS. If we look at our feelings in our hearts and say, that's what we're going to give ourselves to, we have to recognize that we're deceived. Yes, people feel that way. They really do. And it's because of the brokenness that entered the world when Adam and Eve said yes to sin and rejected God's authority. All of us have inherited that brokenness. One of the things we've got to be careful about in the church is not acting like we're not broken. All of us are broken sexually. It's just in what way are we broken? And so what we've got to do as the people of God is we have to recognize that there are going to be people over the next 10 years that are thrown in the wake of the sexual revolution. There are going to be people that think, I'll get attention, I'll be happy if I have this procedure done. I'll get attention, I'll be happy if I give myself to this kind of relationship. And what people are going to find is that it won't do that. What we have to do as the people of God, as the churches, we have to be ready to receive the wounded and the broken people that are being offered a bill of goods by our culture and our world. And the way that we do that, sweet people, is by placing a value and a premium on the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and his blood is more precious, more valuable to us than anything else this world has to offer to us. That's what we hold out, and that's how we shift from being consumers that are charmed by things this world has to offer to being aliens that are consumed with the goodness of God's grace. Peter ends this, these first two verses, this introduction with a prayer. Look in your Bibles with me. We'll close with this. He enters with a prayer, ends with a prayer. He says, may the grace and peace of God be multiplied to you. Grace and peace. This is a Greek welcome and a, and a Jewish welcome. Grace, that's kindness, that's unmerited favor, that's not getting what we deserve, that's getting kindness instead of punishment. And peace, that's shalom, that's rest, that's tranquility. It's the picture of our lake here, Lake of the Ozarks, being totally unmoved and tranquil. What God offers you today is grace and peace. And just as Peter prayed that over the people living in Asia, the church is there, I'm going to close this morning by praying for you in the same way. Would you please pray with me, church? Father God, we thank you that you do indeed offer us grace and peace.